morning, everyone. Would you stand and sing with us the church's one foundation? celebrate the anniversary of um, the Protestant Reformation and uh, Martin Luther, who was a key player in that, and you'll hear more about this morning, his great hymn of the Reformation, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. So let's sing that this morning. A mighty fortress is our God. A bulwark never fails. Our helper, he amid the flood of mortal is prevailing. For still our ancient foes seek to work us woe. 
Good morning. What a joy it is to be with you this morning in the house of the Lord on this special Sunday as we celebrate a great thing of God done in the past that continues into the present. So as we begin this morning, let's turn to the one who's made it all possible. Our God and our King, we thank you this morning that the word is still true, the gospel is still living, and you are still good. Father, this morning we want to recognize a work of your spirit that glorified your son, that built up your church, and has strengthened your people for centuries, the gospel. We want to celebrate the gospel this morning. And so would you lead us as only you can. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to rejoice in the greatness of the gospel that has impacted us not only in time, but will also for all eternity. For your glory, to that end we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. I want you to imagine a dark time spiritually across all of Europe and much of the world. The church in Rome held an almost iron grip over the souls and lives of people. The local mass was always practiced in Latin, which most of the people and even the priests themselves did not understand. Generation after generation of people would be born. They would live. They would die without ever hearing the hope of eternal life and the forgiveness of sins in their own language. God and 
the gospel itself seemed out of reach for the common man. As a result, people were driven to superstition and fear to try to find forgiveness from sin or to try to find peace with God. But Bibles were not available to the common man because the church thought that it was only the bishops and the official clergy that could understand and teach it. Moreover, since it was only available in Latin, which the people could not read, it was often that the services would be conducted by rote memory without understanding of what they were saying. There was use and abuse of icons and idols and saints and pictures and indulgences which led to an ongoing fleecing of the people of God to build beautiful cathedrals, but in which people had no spiritual life. Without the proper restraint of Bible teaching, priests, including bishops, and even the popes would take on mistresses, having families with them, though, of course, never referring to them as wives or their own children. Financial malfeasance was the common practice, with powerful families buying the offices of bishops and priests so that they could have control over the villages and over the peasants. The few who knew the Lord were grieved by the widespread sin and corruption that not only polluted the world but contaminated the church. And as the Enlightenment began to flicker in Europe, it led to the church beginning to discover, or we might say rediscover, what had been taught in the beginning through Jesus and the apostles. As the study of the original languages of Greek and Hebrew began, people began to rediscover not only the truths of the gospel, but the glaring errors that the Church of Rome had brought over the centuries. As a result, the Spirit began to stir men to discover the truth, to proclaim the truth, to live the truth, and if necessary, to die for the truth. And so it is today that we celebrate the Reformation, that awesome movement of the Spirit of God over 500 years ago, as men called the church to return to the truth of Scripture, to surrender to the Lordship of Christ, to celebrate the true communion of saints, and understand the gospel as it really is, that saving plan for lost sinners. But the battle for the gospel was long and difficult, and it came at great cost to many individuals and to society as a whole. And so this morning, we want to take a fresh look at those clarion calls of the Reformation. And we're going to do it by using the story of five brave men, showing how their lives and their understandings make a difference because they brought back, as it were, the truth to the church. And then we will have five statements that we will affirm together. These five affirming statements of the Reformation can be summarized in this way, but we will say them again and again. Under the authority of Scripture alone, we affirm that salvation is, of sinners is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. This means that all human efforts, be they traditions, practices, sacrifices, or works, are useless before a holy God. A person is saved, declared holy and forgiven, and just solely upon the work, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we confess faith in Jesus Christ as the Lord of our lives and a Savior from our sin, we are united with Christ 
And the Father who looks upon us and sees that we are now joined with Christ, looks at us through sunglasses, spelled S-O-N, and seeing that we are clothed in his righteousness, declares us forgiven and prepares us for eternity. And we are reminded then that there is nothing that we bring to our own salvation except our sin, which made it necessary. But you might ask this morning as we begin, isn't the Reformation over? Hasn't the battle for truth and the gospel already been won? And to that I say yes and no. Yes, because the Reformation established and reestablished the battle lines that proclaim the truth. But no, because the truth for the battle for truth is ongoing and it must be waged by every generation of Bible believing Christians. And that battle continues today because our airwaves and radio channels are filled and littered with false teachers and false gospels of all stripes. We have the prosperity gospel. We have the social gospel. We have the justice gospel. We got man-centered gospels of all stripes. And we have an easy believism gospel where you just have to say a few words and you're done forever. According to the most recent study of Ligonier Ministries, called The State of Theology, published in December of 2020. All is not well in the church. I'm only going to cite answers given in this survey by self-professing evangelicals. I'm not going to give a comprehensive report, but I'm going to give you a summary to show that the church of Jesus Christ must continue engaging in the battle for truth. In this latest survey published less than a year ago among self-confessing evangelicals, 30% agreed with the statement, Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. 42% of evangelicals agree that God accepts the worship of all religions. 46% agree that the Holy Spirit is a force, but is not a personal being. 18% of evangelicals agree that the Holy Spirit can lead a person to do something that is forbidden in the Bible. 46% of evangelicals agree that though everyone sins a little, most people are good by nature. And 43% of evangelicals do not agree with the statement that the smallest sin is worthy of eternal condemnation. 39% agree that worshiping alone or staying at home with one's family is a valid replacement for regularly attending church. Now, if you do not see the problems with these answers, my friends, you're perpetuating them. And we need to get back to the gospel and overcome with the, these errors with the truth. Now, there is some good news. 94% of evangelicals agree that the Bible has the authority to tell us what to do. 91% believe that the Bible is 100% accurate in all that it teaches. And 100% of evangelicals in this survey agree that the Bible is the highest authority for what we believe. But 11% of those same evangelicals say that the Bible's condemnation of homosexuality does not apply today. 15% do not believe that the Bible is literally true. And 23% say that religion is a matter of personal opinion not of objective truth. 
100% of evangelicals in this survey agree that God created people as male and female, but 21% of those same people say that gender identity is a matter of choice. Error and teaching abound, uh, uh, and wrong teaching abound in the church. And if those errors are found in the church, how much more so in the culture before whom we are to stand as priests of light? And so today, throughout this service, we will stand with those who stood up in the face of evil and darkness and say, no more. God will be praised. His truth will be declared. Come what may. And I invite you to join me in joining your voices to all of those who will confess these things today around the world. And so we will begin looking at the first doctrine, which is sola scriptura. Scripture alone, the confession that our authority comes from the word of God alone. And to do that, we will look at the life of William Tyndale. And what we'll do this morning is we will give a little biography of different men with some Bible teaching that shows the proof of that tenet of Reformation theology. And then we will give an affirmation and a denial of what we believe and what we do not believe. When we think of the world of William Tyndale, he entered a world where for centuries the church used the Latin Vulgate, which was seen as the official and inspired version of the Bible. It could only be studied by clergy, and they were alone to teach and interpret it. All of the masses, all of the doctrinal teaching of the Catholic Church was to be done only in Latin. But the problem was, the priests themselves were often uneducated, not knowing Latin, and so they just memorized it by rote and then gave the mass without any understanding of what they were saying, how much less those who were sitting in the pews. The English Catholic Church had a law that the Bible could only be read and used in Latin, and they were serious. In 1519, the church in England burned a woman and six men to death for the serious crime of teaching their children English versions of the Lord's Prayer and the Apostles' Creed. Into that gap of ignorance and tyranny stepped William Tyndale. Born near Gloucester in England around 1494, he went on to study at Oxford and then Cambridge where he became familiar with the writings of Martin Luther. In 1521, upon graduation, he became a tutor and a chaplain in the home of Sir John Walsh and began to study the New Testament in Greek, copies of which had just been made available a few years before. Tyndale would go on to be a master of languages, speaking seven fluently and also being proficient in Hebrew and Greek. And while he stayed at the home of Sir John Walsh, he would have the opportunity to interact with a steady stream of priests and monks that would go through the area. He would share with them what he was learning from the Greek New Testament, but was astonished at their ignorance of the scriptures and the errors that they were teaching. They seemed more interested in protecting the church tradition and leadership than in learning the truths of scripture. And one day a priest said to Tyndale, no, it is better to be without God's law than to be without the Pope. And in response, Tyndale replied with what would become his life's work. If God spare my life before many years, I will cause a boy that drives the plow to know more of the scriptures than you do. And at that time, 
There was only an English version that had been translated a couple years before by John Wycliffe, but since he had translated it from the Latin, it contained many errors. Tyndale wanted to go about it the right way, so he sought official approval from the church and from the government authorities to translate the Bible into English, but he was rebuffed. And it was made very clear in his own words, not only was there no room in my Lord in London's palace to translate the New Testament, but there would be no place to do it in all of England. So he went to Germany. He settled in Hamburg. He found some merchants who were able to finance his work, and he set about to translate the Bible from the Greek into English. In 1525, he finished his initial version and began to print off pages in the city of Cologne. But one of his assistants got a little too lippy under the influence of wine and began to let people know what was going on. His opponents heard about what he was doing and set upon the shop. Thankfully, Tyndale heard about it in the nick of time and got to the printing shop before they did and fled with the pages that had already been printed. He moved to Worms in Germany, where there was a lot more sympathy for the reforming ideas of Martin Luther. And they started a printing run of 6,000 copies of the New Testament in English. They were smuggled into England a few pages at a time, hidden in bales of cloth. But the king of England and the bishops and the church of Rome were on the lookout. And so they sought to buy up every copy they could to burn them. Church, lots of copies of the Bible burned. One bishop, William Warnham of Canterbury, thought it would be best to buy up all the copies. They did. God is not mocked. All that did was provide financing for a second edition, and, and so Tyndale put about to build a better, more advanced edition of what, because he's now a deeper understanding of the language, and he was able to even include marginal notes and explanations. By 1530, he also was able to complete large sections of the Old Testament, such as the first five books of Moses and others, from Joshua to Second Chronicles. He was a master of words. Now think about this. The Bible had never been translated into English from the original Greek. There were many words that simply did not exist in English at that time. And so Tyndale is the one who coined many phrases that now just ring in our ears as familiar sayings. Sayings like, am I my brother's keeper? There were shepherds abiding in their fields, keeping watch over their flocks by night. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Those words had never been uttered, even thought of many, many times before Tyndale. He invented these words in English to try to accommodate the original Greek. In the words of one commentator, William Tyndale gave us our English Bible. And his New Testament became the standard by which all subsequent translations of the Bible into English were built. Even the King James Bible itself, over 90% of the New Testament is word for word from Tyndale's original translation. As is almost the first half of the Old Testament, which is all he was able to finish before he died a martyr's death. Now Tyndale would write about books on doctrine and on the Christian faith, but it was his pioneering work as a translator that remained his most important legacy. He taught the truths about man's sinful nature about Christ's divinity, about the sovereignty of God in all things, about justification by faith alone. But it is, was his commitment to get the Bible into the hands of the people in a language they could understand 
that is his greatest legacy. Eventually, he moved to Antwerp in Belgium, where he continued his studies, but he was betrayed there. A certain criminal, Henry Phillips by name, had been bought off by the British soldier to try to locate Tyndale. And as he wormed his way into the inner circle and gained Tyndale's confidence, he arranged to have him betrayed as they walked through narrow passages of Antwerp one night where he was kidnapped and taken to the castle at Vilvoorde, six miles north of Brussels. He languished in prison for 18 months, denied even the most basic of necessities until he was put on trial as a heretic and ordered to be burned at the stake. His crime... He believed in justification by faith alone, and he translated the Bible into English. As he was led to his execution, he was given one last chance to repent, but he refused, saying, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. And with that, he was bound to a beam, surrounded with an iron pipe, iron chain, sorry, a rope fastened around his neck, a wooden brush placed around him, the gunpowder thrown onto the fire, and the executioner quickly lighting the torch, bringing this heroic man to death. I hope you will appreciate the copy of God's word that you have in your hand, that you can open at your desk at night, that you have in your nightstand, because the Bible is our sole source of unending truth. It alone can bind our conscience and gird us to live for the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to what the psalmist said in Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. By them is your your servant born, and in keeping them there is great reward. That's out of the reading of God's word. I invite you to stand with me now as we recite our pledge to sola scriptura, to the authority of scripture alone. Say it with me. We reaffirm the inerrant scripture to be the sole source of written divine revelation, which alone can bind the conscience. The Bible alone teaches all that is necessary for our salvation from sin and is the standard by which all Christian behavior must be measured. We deny that any creed, council, or individual may bind a Christian's conscience, that the Holy Spirit speaks independently of or contrary to what is set forth in the Bible, or that personal spiritual experience can ever be a vehicle of revelation. Thank you. Please remain standing for the reading. If you're visiting with us, obviously you know this, but this is not a normal service today. We do read special preparation. Uh, we will have
Good morning, everyone. It's a special Sunday morning. Uh, I'd like to welcome Marcia here this morning. <laughs> she's been blessed to be able to come and be with us this morning. She says she's enjoyed the online service with you others that have uh, are still at home or or uh, can't can't be with us. But uh, she's really excited about being with us now, uh, even after she had surgery and is recovering from her surgery it's great to great to see you marcia like to welcome the warwicks here too uh ken and joanne missionaries for 27 years in the is that okay more than that <laughs> okay and uh they will be uh, um they'll be with us at the 11 o'clock hour to share with us and we're gonna they're gonna speak in a few minutes about the missionary about their missionary moment and uh then after o'clock hour there will be the missionary committee has prepared a luncheon and 
for all those who would like to stay and uh, share with the like to ask you to be sure and fill out the attendance cards. The ones that are at the uh, beginning of the aisle and just pass them across. They can pick it up later. Um, next Sunday, the missionary, the missionary committee has been very busy. <laughs> We've had a busy month ahead. And uh, next week, uh, next Sunday will be uh, a time to recognize uh, Orphan Awareness Day. Um, so there are materials that the mission committee will be handing out uh, before or after the service for you to pick up. Also, the International Day of Prayer for uh, per Persecuted Church is next Sunday, too. Um, and um, there will be cards out, out back for that. And the uh, missionary uh, committee uh, has uh, set up November 12th, which is a Friday night, at 6 p.m., there will be a movie <laughs> uh, called The Insanity of God, and uh, uh, we'll be learning about trusting the Lord in times of suffering, and uh, there will be Save the Date cards out in the foyer this morning, so you can pick those up. And we want you to mark your calendars for a Thanksgiving dinner on uh, November 21st at 5 p.m., the Sunday before Thanksgiving, and the Women's Committee will have information if you'd like to, and I hope, hope you would like to serve the body of Christ here and, uh, and ask how you can help with, uh, with the meal. And we'll have a time of sharing and Thanksgiving, of course, for, at that time. Uh, the Women's Committee invites you to a 3M prayer meeting be held Thursday, November 11th from 6.30 to 8.30 at the Hensel Home. And all women are invited to see Carol Hensel or Sharon Rogers if you have any questions about that. And uh, the Kanachis, Joey and then Michael Ferretti are, are sponsoring a Bible study for the men's group on Wednesday night. And they have, usually have a meal with us. Is Joey here? There he, there he is, <laughs> hiding in the corner. So um, they still have room in that. It's at the Kanachi house. Um, there's, uh, we have the offering box in the back. Uh, we don't pass the uh, offering plates any longer. We started that with uh, COVID, and, and so we have a box in the back. If you would like to designate anything, you can, um, your giving to a specific ministry, you can um, write that on the outside of the envelope. And uh, also, um, uh, we suggested that uh, if you want to designate the missionary of the month, who is Linda Reed, this month, uh, you can, instead, instead of, you re everybody remembers Linda's name, but sometimes with the missionary of the month, we don't remember by the time <laughs> it gets to the box back there. So to be specific, you can just put M-O-M on your check. And uh, that'll go directly to Missionary Month, and it'll be mailed out that same month. All right. Okay. Um, we have a missionary moment where Ken and Joanne Warwick are coming up. Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> uh, look right in. Thank you so much. 
It is great to be back in Oroville. Uh, we both grew up in Red Bluff, and so this isn't too far from uh, home. And uh, having been in Minnesota 26 years, uh, it's always uh, a treat to come back. First thing I want to say, though, this morning is thank you. And I say thank you to the Lord for you because for 32 years, you partnered with us in gospel ministry. Now, I know you may not think that's anything special, but you, if you think about our culture today, one where relationships are maybe measured in news cycles or in days, 32 years of faithful partnership and in prayer for the ministries around the world with the Evangelical Free Church. And so I want you to, um, in a sense, celebrate what the Lord has done through you as a demonstration of the kind of faithfulness that he exercises towards us as his children every day. You've done well in that. Thank you. Uh, we, will, we will talk more about some of these things at the 11 o'clock. In fact, I told Joanne, we'll just save her, save the best for the 11 o'clock. Um, but it's so appropriate that this is part of Reformation Sunday because the Reformation, among other things, and the rediscovery of the gospel helped launch the modern missions movement. As the priesthood of all believers was rediscovered as well, that it wasn't just the professionals who did ministry, it's all of us who do ministry in the Lord's name and in the Lord's power. And uh, that's really what is going on in the Free Church Mission. And so as our prayer request this morning, I'm looking for a minimum, but at least three people who would like to join us in earnestly praying for laborers to go into the harvest. It seems to me that I read somewhere that the harvest was plentiful, but the laborers were few. Hmm, sounds like maybe scripture. And uh, if, if you would like, I'll, I'll give you one of these. This lays out uh, the teams around the world where the Evangelical Free Church is working. And that'll give you enough insight to say, Lord, I want to come alongside these brothers and sisters who, who are taking the gospel into a place where the gospel is not known to see the church established as an ongoing testimony to the magnificence of our Lord. So hope to see many of you at 11. Thank you, Kenny. Joanne? This is a, it's a farewell time for us now because uh, Ken and Joanne have retired, and uh, they'll share more about that. But uh, <laughs> yeah. All right, if you'd stand with me, uh, we'll look at the Lord's Word, which is our one foundation. <laughs> And you were dead in the trespasses of sins and in which once you walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. 
But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Amen. <laughs> By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in, coming, in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. May God bless the word to our hearts and our lives. You may be seated. I would like to make a couple more announcements that came in later, later on. Um, if you are looking for a ministry to serve in, there are plenty of them in the church, and uh, uh, Awana is a great outreach ministry for the church, and it, it, it reaches children saved and, and unsaved in the community and, and their families, and they uh, meet on Wednesday night uh, from 5.30 to 7.45. Tim Giordano is the uh, leader, uh, commander, I believe is what, <laughs> what it's called. And uh, there are needs for listeners to listen to the children as they memorize their verses and, and they respond. And, and um, there's just always needs for more, more help. And, uh, and they also need us. Uh, those are in sparks for the listeners. And they need a male leader or mentor uh, in the bo for boys uh, third, three, third grade through sixth grade. Um, Okay, I'd like to read a letter, um, an application for membership uh, has been submitted and, and received, and the Board of Elders and Deacons uh, would like to present, um, recommend the following individual to be accepted into the membership of the church. She has confessed with her mouth Jesus Christ as her Lord and Savior and believes in her heart that God has raised her from the dead. And that is Andrea Bamford. Are you, are you here with us this morning, Andrea? <laughs> there she is. <laughs> she just stepped outside. So uh, this is posted according to our um, bylaws. And, and um, so uh, if any member of the church believes there is a just cause to reject the individual on this list into membership of the church, please contact any elder or deacon, or me during this upcoming week. Your fellow servants in Christ, Greg Hensel, pastor. Okay, I have some, I have one more uh, request, and I'll just make you aware before we uh, go into prayer time. Um, Harley Chapman is in the hospital, and uh, he's uh, been admitted, <coughs> excuse me, with a blood clot, uh, and he has um, 
MRSA, too. He contacted MRSA, uh, which is a serious uh, infection um, and, and resistant to treatment. And so he's very weak. He's undergoing, if, if you don't know, he's undergoing uh, cancer treatment. And, uh, and so his immune system is really weak, and he's very weak. So um, I'd like you to pray for Harley and his, uh, that he would have peace and that Eleanor and the family would have peace too. So <clears throat> with, with that, shall we go, go to the Lord in prayer? Heavenly Father, uh, we do thank you so much for, for Harley and, uh, and Eleanor and for their ministry over the many years here at BOC and, and um, um, we pray that you be with the family and comfort them, strengthen them and grant them your peace, Father, not, not the world's peace, but your peace that you've promised through Christ Jesus. Thank you, Father. Um, we'd like to, to continue to thank you for the blessings of this church on the, that you've uh, bestowed upon this church, upon us as individuals and upon the body of this church for the, uh, the many years um, that we've been able to minister to the community here and, and to the body of believers. Um, Father, we, we would like to confess our sins to you, Lord. Um, we have not loved you as we should or served others as we should, and we have held back from trusting you completely. We confess that we are far too often afraid and angry and selfish. May the blood of Jesus Christ cleanse us, and may your grace empower us to live for you and your kingdom above all. Help us, O oh Lord, to know you more. We pray for revival in the church and spiritual awakening in the land. May the Lord stir the church to return to the gospel truths of the Reformation. May your hearts be set alight to glorify God in all we do and proclaim well the word of truth. May the Lord free our hearts and minds from the idols we have created and seek to serve him alone in heart, soul, mind, and strength. Father, we lift up the Warwicks. Um, we thank you for blessing um, the church with the Warwicks ministry. Um, and uh, we thank you that uh, they were able to find time to come and share with us, Father. And uh, we pray that you would bless their ministry in retirement and, and the work that they have committed to you, Father, and continue to use it. For your glory. Father, we'd like to pray for the, the schools um, that are going through so much now. Um, <clears throat> turmoil and disagreement. And um, we lift uh, Christian uh, staff and teachers up to you in the churches that they would stand firm on their beliefs and that you'd give them strength and give them the words to speak. And we pray for all teachers that they would seek the, the best for the children and uh, that you would give them a heart for the children. And I know so many teachers have that, but um, their um, leadership sometimes uh, or often puts 
whether it's the benefit of the uh, members of the unions or over over the church. And also, Father, we pray for the children that they not be confused with the teachings of uh, of um, a woke community, Father. And uh, we pray for the Orville Christian School. We thank you for the uh, light they are in the community. May they continue to be a light and stand firm in the teachings of Christ, of your scripture, Father, of a way of living in a world that's uh, opposed to your to your teachings, Father. We pray that you strengthen them and bless them in uh, the knowledge of Christ. Father, we pray for the persecuted church in North Africa and Middle East. May the Lord, may you encourage and protect and strengthen his children in the underground church to stand firm in the face of great hostility and persecution. And we pray for the leaders of our city, uh, state, <clears throat> the country, Father, that you would work in their hearts as you have placed them in the positions of authority over us, Father, that they would <clears throat> continue to seek peace and provide uh, and bless us with the opportunity to, to worship you, Father, and uh, not restrict Father, we pray for families of our VOC uh, that you continue to um, place in their hearts uh, a desire to serve you and to serve their families as the family uh, is, is, was set up in the church and uh, that you would continue to bless it. We pray, uh, Father, that uh, we would be humbled to one another. And, and seeking your will in all the decisions that we make in relationship to the faith. Uh, Father, uh, we do continue to pray for those who are ill, hospitalized, with homebound, uh, that they would be encouraged in, in uh, what you have placed in their heart through your Holy Spirit, Father, and remind them of your promises and the hope we have in Christ Jesus. And Father, may you continue to bless the offerings here at this church and uh, that you would give wisdom to the leaders to use it in, in a manner that is uh, of highest calling and, uh, and would bring glory to you, Father. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. At this time, our children can be dismissed to their you to stand as we continue singing this morning as we sing a Reformation hymn that just encompasses all these truths that we're going to be hearing about this morning. So uh, would you stand and sing with us?
claim is Jesus Christ and his finished sacrifice. Glory be, glory be to God alone. Through the church he redeemed and made his own. He has freed us he will keep us till we're saved. Behold, glory be, glory be to God alone. We are saved by grace alone, undeserved yet freely shown. No accomplishment on earth can achieve the second birth we will stand on Christ alone the unyielding cornerstone nations rage and devils roar still he reigns forevermore glory be glory be to God alone through the church he redeemed and made his own. He has freed us. He will keep us till we're safely home. Glory be, glory be to God alone. Glory be, glory be to God alone. church he redeemed and made his own he has freed us he will keep us till we're saved be home glory be glory be to God alone thank you, you may be seated part of this service that we, as we have uh, done this for, uh, I believe this is our third time now that we've been able to um, observe this and um, remember the importance of the, of the Reformation and how God has used these giants of the faith to impact the church today. And I know that uh, Pastor Greg would agree that as we attempt to serve the Lord here at this church, minister to this congregation, that we stand on the shoulders of these giants in the faith, reaping the benefits of their love and devotion to the Word of God. And so as we come to the second of the five solas of the Reformation, and sola gratia, or grace alone, we're going to spend some time this morning looking even further beyond, further before the time of the Reformation, at one of the early churches, Father, who 
these men of the Reformation whose whose shoulders they stood upon as we look at St. Augustine or Augustine, depending on which school you come from. But many of the Reformers were greatly influenced by the works of Augustine. Um, in fact, in, in, in a book that was uh, written by Ray Van Nest and Michael Garrett celebrating the 500th uh, anniversary of the Reformation, uh, they pointed out that John Calvin was well influenced by the writings of Augustine. And they mentioned that after Scripture, Calvin quotes Augustine more than any other source, and Augustine wins by a mile. Martin Luther also was greatly influenced by August, Augustine. Although his influence was not only during the time uh, when Luther was protesting the teachings of the Catholic Church, but can be traced back to his time as a monk within the Catholic Church. In fact, there's been a divide of Augustine's influence between the Catholic and the Protestant Church, with both churches claiming him as an ancestor in the faith. Um, in, In a biography on Augustine, Gerald Bray writes, It is fair to say that in the confessional debates of modern times, Augustine has been used by all branches of Western Christendom in support of their own doctrines and ecclesiology. Roman Catholic scholars are sometimes surprised to discover how much he relied on the Bible, and Protestants often find that he was more Catholic than they were comfortable with. So it might bear bear questioning why Augustine would be one of the subjects uh, during our Reformation Day celebration. Because after all, the focus of the, res- of the Reformation was the protest of the teachings of the Catholic Church. Well, it's Augustine's understanding of the doctrine of grace that leads us to look more closely at his teaching. Augustine, or Aurelius Augustinus, was born in 354 in North Africa. His father, Patrick, was a pagan and he was an alcoholic. He died when Augustine was only 17, and being a distant father, uh, a a distant father figure prior, he left little influence on him. His mother, on the other hand, was a different story. His mother, Monica, with, if you, um, for a little bit of trivia to impress your friends later in the week, Santa Monica, the city of Santa Monica, is named after Augustine's mother. So you can just bring that up in conversation and show off your intelligence this week. Uh, But Monica was a devout Christian who prayed for her son earnestly and who desperately desired his salvation. While Augustine wouldn't come to know Christ until he was 32, the Lord certainly used the persistence of his mother to introduce him to the idea of grace. And if I would, just for a moment, just say, parents, persist. You may have a wayward son or daughter. Pray. Pray and pursue, and pray that the Lord would do the work. And that, because that is what we saw. If you if you want to go back, go and read even more in, in the life of Augustine, you will see this persistence in his mother and her desire that her son would know Jesus. Well, Augustine he sought to be a student of rhetoric, desiring to mesmerize crowds with intellect and speech, and so he left his home in North Africa for Carthage. And during his time as a student, he fell in love with philosophy. And a group of people caught his attention. Uh, They were known as the Manichees, a religious sect that sought to align the beliefs of several different religions while preaching salvation through knowledge and reason. Which doesn't sound too far off from a lot of religious beliefs that exist today. 
And their teachings intrigued Augustine, but soon he became disillusioned with their inability to reconcile their enlightened belief with their lifestyle of debauchery, which also sounds very much like many religious belief systems today. Well, Augustine, he felt the need to move on from Carthage, and he traveled to Rome. And in Rome, he fell under the influence of um, thinkers who rejected uh, or who questioned the existence of absolute truth. And then after Rome, Augustine found himself in Milan, where he came across the local bishop Ambrose. And Ambrose, being a master of rhetoric and logic, Augustine gravitated toward. He wanted to uh, hear more from him, and he wanted to sit under his preaching. For the first time, Christianity started to make sense for him. One of the things that was holding him back was his unwillingness to give up the lifestyle in which he lived much of which was in immorality. Finding himself torn between the pleasures of the world and forsaking all for Christ. He writes in his his biography, he uh, he tells of the story walking through a garden where he heard what he said sounded like the children's voices that were reciting over and over again like they were singing, take up and read. Saying that phrase, take up and read over and over again. So he felt moved to go and pick up the scriptures. And when he picked up the scriptures, what he turned to was Romans chapter 13, verses 13 through 14. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Augustine would then surrender his life to Christ. He was baptized and then later returned to Africa with his mother. And in 391, he went on what he thought was going to be a short visit to Hippo Regius. And while there, attended church, he met the bishop who invited him to be his assistant. And Augustine in 395 would be appointed bishop himself and stayed there, which is why he is now known as Augustine of Hippo. Well, during his time as bishop, Augustine worked, uh, or he wrote several works, most notable his Confessions, which serve as a spiritual autobiography of sorts, and then City of God, which is just a massive work through which he tried to show that current events are the outworking of God's eternal plan. He was teaching the sovereignty in the city of, through the city of God, and, he, he, and he, he saw the city of God and the city of man and how God is sovereign over all. But it was his teaching on grace that many of the reformers clung to, and which also brought debate from fellow theologian Pelagius. Now, Pelagius was outraged by one of the prayers in Augustine's Confessions, in which he prayed, Give what you command, command what you will. And that prayer implied man's inability and dependence on God, as well as man's great need for God's grace to do the very thing that God had commanded him to do. Well, Pelagius argued against that notion, saying that if God commanded man to do anything, then it must be possible for man to have the ability within himself to do that which had been commanded. His thought was God would never command man to do something that he could not do. So Pelagius wrote a couple of books. Uh, They were called On Nature and On Free Will. 
in which he made his belief very clear. And Augustine responded by writing his own book. That's what people did back in the day. You wrote a book, you didn't agree with it, you wrote a book back. And then they would write a book back to you. And so we get to read these books of debates. And so he wrote his book back that was called On Nature and Grace. And the, de- the debate hinged upon Pelagius' rejection of original sin, which nullified the necessity for grace and salvation. Now, Augustine used passages such as Psalm 51, Romans 5, to demonstrate that all humankind was affected by Adam's guilt and corruption. And with his understanding of Romans 3, verse 11, that there is no one who seeks for God. Augustine came to the conclusion that before the fall, before the fall, man had the ability to sin and the ability not to sin. But after the fall, after Adam and Eve chose to sin, it left mankind in a state of, as it says in the Latin, non poste, non pecare, which translates to not able not to sin. Okay, if you're an English major, that might drive you nuts. Okay, that's a double negative. Not able not to sin. But that best illustrates what the scriptures taught, that man was incapable, apart from the grace of God, to turn to God in salvation. That man was not able to not sin. And he, so and in that, able not to turn to God. That man needed God's grace. Augustine believed and taught that grace and grace alone was necessary for salvation. Pelagius disagreed. He was later condemned as a heretic for his rejection of original sin, but his teachings would live on in many belief systems. And and his his belief has been resurrected in much of what is known as semi-Pelagianism, which doesn't adopt maybe the idea of the original sin, but does adopt the idea that God's grace is not sufficient that mankind still had some ability to earn God's favor. This was a prominent teaching of the Roman Catholic Church as it held the view that grace must be helped with good works such as penance, confession, vigils, and fasting. And if we're not careful, semi-Pelagianism can creep into Protestant churches as well with teachings that we have to meet God halfway. That God is waiting for us to invite him into our hearts. That we need to walk an aisle, prayer a prayer, or even be baptized in order that we be saved. The reformers like Luther and Calvin stood on the shoulders of men like Augustine and claimed that salvation could only be of grace alone because of the wretched heart of man that is inclined only toward evil. Unless God grants faith in the heart of man, man will never believe but will remain in his will remain in his stubborn willful disbelief unless anybody think that this is coercion augustine referred to this grace as irresistible because of its ineffable sweetness it was impossible to resist because of the goodness and the sweetness that is involved in its in, in this grace And so when the reformers returned to the scriptures with Augustine by their side, the gratuity of God's grace liberated them from a system of works. And as a result, these men, they were awakened by the rediscovery of sovereign grace, and they climbed into their pulpits with liberating news for captive sinners. In the scriptures that we just had, 
heard from, as, as Jerry read to us just a moment ago, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And that it is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So I invite you to stand with me, reaffirm this truth, and any claims to our own works as a means to obtaining eternal salvation. Let us read this together. We reaffirm that in salvation we are rescued from God's wrath by His grace alone. It is the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit that brings us to Christ by releasing us from our bondage to sin and raising us from spiritual death to spiritual life. We deny that salvation is in any sense a human work. Human methods, techniques, or strategies by themselves cannot accomplish this transformation. Faith is not produced by our unregenerated human nature. You may be seated. Well, I'm going to continue here this morning as we look to the next sola, sola fide, faith alone. In his book, Rescuing the Gospel, Erwin Lutzer gives this sobering take on the modern church. Growth church experts tell us that most people seeking a new church care little about its doctrine. They're mostly interested in the facilities of the church, its nursery, and opportunities for friendship. In fact, we are told that doctrinal teaching in new members' classes will actually turn people away rather than encourage them to join the church. The experts tell us that today's church members will switch churches at a moment's notice if they think their personal and relational needs will be better, better met elsewhere, even if the doctrine is at best suspect. Thus, some will opt for better facilities and architecture, even at the expense of jeopardizing their own souls. So if you wonder why we might, be, might spend this time on this day to remember and celebrate the events of the Reformation, it is because we believe that doctrine is important. Unless you think that the Reformation doesn't matter because that's history, we must pay attention to what is happening in our culture today and even within evangelical churches. The same struggles of the Reformation are still going on today. It's just the names have changed and it's a different context. Filmmaker Woody Allen had it right when he said, history repeats itself. It has to. Nobody listens the first time around. On July 6, 1415, Czech theologian and philosopher John Huss was set to be burned at the stake, labeled a heretic by the Catholic Church. He attacked the church primarily over its claims that the Pope and not Christ was the head of the church and its sale of indulgences or payments that would grant one salvation. You want another piece of trivia? The, uh, the name Huss in Czech means goose. Now, this one's actually pertinent to what I'm about to say, so this isn't just random. Because on the day of his execution, it is reported that Huss said, you can cook this goose, but within a century, a swan will, shall arise who will prevail. 102 years later, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses on the door of Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany. And this prophetic declaration from Huss has led to Luther being labeled as the swan of the Reformation. In fact, there are many 
there, there's a lot of uh, literature and uh, or, uh, art that in, depicts Luther with a swan. Uh, Martin Luther was born in Eisleben, Germany in 1483. Growing up with pious and strict parents, religion was a part of everyday life. In the summer of 1505, while he was caught in a thunderstorm, a bolt of lightning struck the ground near him, causing him to explain, St. Anne, help me, I will become a monk. So Luther left the university where he was studying and joined a monastery. And during his time there, he was led to believe that the best chance for he had for salvation was to commit himself to discipline and the pursuit of grace by merit. And what he found in this pursuit was a feeling of emptiness and despair. And what he hoped would bring him peace and comfort was only plunging him deeper into darkness. Uh, so it was when Luther began teaching through the book of Romans that he became confronted with what God required of his children. Romans 1 verse 17 was a turning point for Luther. Which says, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The thought of the righteousness of God caused him to tremble. Because he realized that no matter how hard he tried to be perfect, uh, to be the perfect monk, he still stood before God as a sinner troubled in conscience. But what gave him comfort was the connection between the righteousness of God and the statement, the righteous shall live by faith. As he began to understand that the righteousness of God is not only an attribute of God, but also a gift that God grants to sinners. This clarity was helped by his study of the original language of Scripture in, in a teaching uh, on justification um, the late R.C. Sproul, he pointed out that in the Latin, which many of the theologians, including Luther, would have, would have studied as they read Scripture, the word justification in Latin is the word justificare, or sorry, not justificare, there's no J in Latin, justificare, which actually combines, it's, it's a combination word, it's made of the word justus, which is the word justice, and facare, that, that verb which means to make. So it was, they would have understand, understood justification as in to make righteous. But now Luther was reading the passage in the Greek, which is the original language, and in the Greek, the word for justification or righteousness that's used here in Romans 1.17 is the word dikaisune, which means to regard as righteous, to count as righteous, not make righteous. So you may be thinking, well, what's the difference? Well, for Luther, and it should be for us as well, this is a huge distinction. What he had previously understood and had been taught was that justification is what happens when God, through outside means, such as the sacraments, would make somebody righteous. That God would use other means that we would perform and he would make them righteous. But what Paul is communicating through the word that he used here was that justification is not something that is made in us through any means, but it is a gift that is given by grace through faith. Let us listen to the words of Luther himself. There I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. 
And this is the passive righteousness with which merciful God justifies us by faith, as it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. This is Luther describing his conversion experience as his soul found peace and rest and hope in the accomplished work of Jesus Christ. And so Luther began to see that the the theology of the Roman Catholic Church had no comfort for its followers. It had none because of its misunderstanding of justification, which paired the grace of God with the works of mankind. So it's no wonder that Luther would object to the sale of indulgences, along with all the other teachings of the Catholic Church that added to the gospel. In Luther's day, it was promoted that you could not only buy your way into heaven through these indulgences, but you could also buy your deceased loved ones who were in purgatory. You could buy their souls out of purgatory and into heaven. The practice of the sale of indulgences still goes on today. The, the, the Catholic Church is still in the practice of doing that. In fact, it, it's just updated to keep with the changing times. In 2013, Pope Francis visited Brazil for World Youth Day, and he offered indulgences to those who could not attend the event, but followed it on social media. You could get out of hell by going on Twitter. Okay, I'm on Twitter. I think it's the exact opposite that's offered It's not indulgences or penance or prayer vigils to the saints and other practices of the Catholic Church that we must be uh, wary of. It's also any teaching that says we can help God in any way in our salvation. So as we saw in the discussion of sola gratia, this semi-Pelagianism creeps into evangelical circles. So for Luther, the offer of buying loved ones out of purgatory was the last straw. So on October 13th, um, I'm sorry, October 31st, 1517, he posted his 95 theses to the door of Castle Church. And here's just a sample of some of those theses. Thesis 1 says, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Thesis 32 Those who believe that they can be certain of their salvation because they have indulgence letters will be eternally damned together with their their teachers. Thesis 52, it is vain to trust in salvation by indulgence letters, even though the indulgence commentary or even the Pope were to offer his soul as security. And thesis 79, to say that the cross emblazoned with the papal coat of arms and set up by the indulgence preachers is equal to the worth of the cross of Christ is blasphemy. Luther wasn't looking to start a movement when he did this. When he nailed his 95 theses to the church door, he, wasn't, he was just simply inviting debate. That was the practice of the day. It wasn't, he wasn't creating a statement. That's what you did. If you wanted to create debate with people in the town, that the church door was like a bulletin board. He was just going and putting this, the, this list on the board to offer debate. Well, debate is what he got. He was invited to three such debates in which he was meant to be condemned as a heretic. And Luther attended each of these debates, first at Heidelberg, then Augsburg, and then Leipzig, attempting to be sentenced to death just as his predecessor Huss was. In 1521, he was summoned to the the, the Diet of Worms, commanded to recant of his beliefs and his teaching. Again, Luther expected this trip to be his last. And he was more resolved than ever in his understanding of Scripture. 
And when asked if he would retract his books and what was written in them, Luther replied, Since then, your majesty and your lordships desire a simple reply. I will answer without horns, without teeth, unless I am convicted by scripture and plain reason, my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand, I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Well, despite his strong stance against the church and against Rome, Luther didn't die a martyr's death. And on his deathbed in 1546, Luther was asked by a friend, Do you want to die standing firm on Christ and the doctrine you have taught? His response was, Absolutely. We are beggars, this is true. We are beggars because we have nothing to offer God. The hymn, Rock of Ages, states, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross of Jesus. This echoes the words of Paul to the Galatians. He writes, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Living by faith alone, as Luther saw it, is meant to capture the proper relationship between human beings and God. As it expresses God for who he is, the redeemer who promises and the one who bestows life, while simultaneously expressing who we are, creatures dependent upon the word of God. So we cling to and we rejoice in the truth that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So I invite you to stand and reaffirm this biblical truth that we are regarded as righteous solely by our faith, and we deny any claims to justification through our own merit. Let us read this together. We reaffirm that justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. In justification, Christ's righteousness is imputed to us as the only possible satisfaction of God's perfect justice. We deny that justification rests on any merit to be found in us or upon the grounds of an infusion of Christ's righteousness in us, or that an institution claiming to be a church that denies or condemns sola fide can be recognized as a legitimate church. Would you remain standing as we sing? Okay, we're going to skip this song since we're a little bit, we're running a little bit late. (laughs) Please be seated. While we're not normally in the practice of talking positively about indulgences, I'm going to ask you to indulge us just a little bit as we go a little longer in our service today, but we'll still, we'll get there. We'll just abbreviate some of the things that remain. We are now arrive in the part of the service where we look at Solus Christus, and we want to look briefly at the life of Ulrich Zwingli. He was considered the third man of the Reformation after Martin Luther and after John Calvin. He was a product of Switzerland, and he was trained in places in Switzerland and Austria, where he was also a great linguist and a a great musician. 
and he spoke out fervently against the practice of mercenary service among the military in Switzerland. Up till that point, it was one of their great sources of income. But he decried what he called the selling of blood for gold and brought about economic reform, emphasizing agriculture and trade instead of being a soldier for hire. Now, Zwingli came into contact with the Greek New Testament, and listen to this. He hand-copied Paul's letters in the New Testament in Greek, carried them around in his pocket, and memorized them word for word. How you doing on your scripture memory? But this encounter through the scriptures led to his conversion and conviction that salvation was by grace alone, through faith alone, and that we turn to scripture alone for our source of authority. He was a priest in the city of, of Prague, uh, I'm sorry, of Zurich, when a plague hit, and the plague wiped out one-third of the city, including his own brother. But he did not flee from the plague, rather he threw himself in the middle of it so he could take care of the sick and dying. And though he became sick himself, he did survive. He attacked what he saw were the excesses of the Roman Catholic Church of that day, believing that Christ died once for all time, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Therefore, there was no need of any further sacrifices or rituals or things that we might perform. He also wanted to get married, but he was against the forced celibacy of priests, so he appealed to the bishop to allow him to marry. The bishop refused, so he secretly married Anna Reinhardt, and, who was a widow of three, and with whom he would have three more children. After two years, they had a public ceremony saying that marriage is a holy rite, and many priests and nuns followed him. He was iconoclastic. He wanted to get rid of the excesses of the church. He got rid of images. He got rid of statues, candles. He removed everything that was not directly mentioned in the New Testament in the modes of worship. And he set about writing the 67 articles for which he is famous where he explained his theology in a systematic way. He wanted the singing of psalms and the expositional teaching of the scriptures, which was probably his greatest contribution to ref the Reformation. He began in the Gospel of Matthew, and he said we must teach the word of God as God the Holy Spirit gave it, and he began to verse by verse teach his way through the scriptures. And one of his early converts, if you will, upon hearing Zwingli preach, and upon hearing the Bible, which had long been neglected, explained in such a simple, straightforward way, said he felt as if Zwingli was lifting him up by the hair of his head. That is the attraction of expositional preaching, which is something the Reformation gave back to the church. As his influence spread throughout Switzerland and throughout other German-speaking areas of Europe, it was because he emphasized those simple truths that we have been affirming again and again this morning. Now, he was a flawed man, like anyone who is made of clay, which is all of us, and so there were some things in his demeanor and some things in his practice that we would not go along with, but he was a man who passionately pursued Christ. He wanted Christ to be the model for the priest, for, the, for the, the clergy. He wanted everything to point forward and directly to Christ as the fulfillment of all things. He emphasized the great truths that unite believers down through the centuries, things like the providence of God, sovereignty and election, and the, and the true nature of pastoral ministry. 
In all things, his model was Christ to be the center. Now, some of his flaws were that he too closely allied the church and the state, and so he would call upon the state to exercise church discipline. He would baptize infants so that they would be seen as residents of both the state and of the church. But even in spite of some of those flaws that would be later corrected by the reformers, he was a man who wanted Christ to be exalted. He died in battle, literal battle, because he wanted to protect what he saw as the freedom to preach the gospel in the cantons, or what are called states, in Switzerland. And as he lay dying on the battlefield with what would be ultimately a moral wound, his opponents would come up to him saying, you need to seek a priest to confess your sins. You need to pray to Mary, the so-called mother of God. And at each imploring of his enemies, he would vigorously shake his head, no. And as his successor records the final scene, he wrote there because of his confession of true faith in Christ, the only savior and mediator and advocate of all believers, he was killed by a captain of the, of the Catholic army. His final words were recorded, they can kill the body, they cannot kill the soul. He was fighting so that freedom, that for the freedom to preach the gospel throughout all of Switzerland and beyond throughout Europe. After his death, the Reformation was halted for a short season, but two of his successors carried it on, namely Heinrich Bollinger and Theodor Beza, and listened to some of the declarations he made in his 67 articles. Article 3. Hence, Christ is the only way to salvation for all who ever were, are, and shall be. Article 6, for Jesus Christ is the guide and leader promised by God to all mankind, whose promise was fulfilled. Article 18, Christ, having sacrificed himself once and for all, is for all eternity a perpetual and acceptable offering for the sins of believers. Article 19, Christ is the only mediator between God and ourselves. Perhaps one of the passages that Zwingli would have memorized would have been Colossians 1, verses 15 to 20, which summarizes what was the central focus of Zwingli's ministry. Colossians 1 says, Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And Christ is before all things. And in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything Christ might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things. Whether on earth or in heaven. Making peace by the blood of his cross. I invite you to stand with me as we reaffirm our commitment to solus Christus, Christ alone. We reaffirm that our salvation is accomplished by the mediatorial work of the historical Christ alone. His sinless life and substitutionary atonement alone are sufficient for our justification and reconciliation to the Father. We deny that the gospel is preached if Christ's substitutionary work is not declared and faith in Christ and his work is not solicited.
Thank you. Please be seated. And very briefly, we'll look at our last solo, which is Soli Deo Gloria to the glory of God alone. And we will use as our historical example, John Calvin. John Calvin was born into a rich family and, and studied theology in Paris under the order of his father who said, I want my son to be a servant in the church. But by age 19, the father had a falling out with the local church parish, and so he ordered his son to switch from theology to law. And so he changed schools and he changed degrees. Possessing a quick mind, Calvin learned the classics and was skilled in languages, rhetoric, and logic. But as he was exposed to the original languages of Scripture, he also became aware of Luther's writings. And these challenged him because all he had known throughout all of his life were the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church. And he resisted for a while, stubborn as he was by his own confession, until he says that his whole life was transformed through, quote, a sudden conversion whereby his stubbornness was overcome and his mind was brought to a teachable frame. At age 27, with his background and his skills that he had learned, he wrote his first edition of what would be called the Institutes of the Christian Faith. It was his attempt to explain the Bible in a systematic way. And all throughout his life, he would update his Institutes. He would write it in Latin and then provide his own French translation. And he continued until, if you look at any copy of it today, a thick volume of crisp, clear, Christ-centered theology. He had to flee at times because of growing persecution, because not only were there things happening within the church, there were things happening within Europe, and oftentimes they were related. And because he was known to be a reformer, he would often have to flee for his life. But what he really wanted to do was just to be a quiet scholar, where he could just quietly study and pray and write. And it was in that pursuit that he was on his way to the city of Strasbourg. But in the providence of God, there was a military conflict going on and it blocked the road. And so he had to make his way to Geneva, which had become an enclave of religious refugees fleeing persecution. He intended to spend one night and go on his way to Strasbourg where he would have a quiet life. But there he happened to run into a man by the name of William Farrell. William Farrell was another one of the reformers that maybe one day will present but he was fiery and, and serious about the need to protect the church in Geneva. And so he heard that Calvin had come. And he came to confront him and say, you need to stay and help us in Geneva to help the pilgrims that are suffering for the faith. And Calvin demurred and resisted because th this was not the type of life that he wanted. But Pharaoh fired back at him, saying, if you do not... Listen to the voice of God. He will curse your studies and you will no longer be at rest. And he took this as a rebuke from God. And out of holy fear, he stayed in Geneva and developed a decades-long relationship with the people there. Though at times he also had to flee Geneva because they weren't always that receptive to his teaching and its implications. In fact, after they'd shooed him away for a couple of years, they realized Calvin's really a good administrator. He understands civic affairs. Let's bring him back. And so it was that Calvin came back not just to be the pastor of the church in Geneva, but to also be, as it were, the city administrator, where he helped write the city charter and constitution, though he did not become a citizen of the city until much later in life. No longer being able to pursue the tranquil life of a scholar, 
He was thrust into the busy life of a church. But he was persistent in his studies, eventually writing commentaries on all books of the New Testament, except the book of Revelation, and on most of the books of the Old Testament. His schedule was such that he would preach an average of 10 sermons every two weeks. In addition to his lectionaries and other things that he would do, he would preach from the New Testament on Sunday morning, from the Psalms on Sunday afternoon, and from the Old Testament during the week. And he continued with the reformation of the church, focusing on prayer, focusing on the reading of scripture, focusing on preaching. By the way, we're going to continue this afternoon. I want you all to come back for... Calvin also was in search of a wife, but he was a strong personality and a bit quirky, and they didn't have matchmaking services in that day, so some of his friends tried to set him up with some different women, and it didn't work out. So what happened was in the providence of God, there was a young woman named Idolette and her husband that began to come to his church and were converted under his preaching, and the husband died. And so after a series of a, a lengthy courtship, they were married, but they would not have children, or they did, but they lost two in infancy. But Idolette did bring two children from her previous marriage, and though she, when she was often sick, he nursed her, and when she passed away, he raised these two children as his own. Calvin was always busy. He was of poor health. He ate one meal a day to keep his persistent migraines at bay. He suffered from colic, kidney stones, gout, and many other maladies. He was never at full strength, but he managed to keep four secretaries busy with his ongoing writings in Latin and Greek and French. If we were able to put all these volumes together, they would fill 48 thick volumes where he clearly is outlying reformational theology. Once he was captivated by the grace of God, Calvin would fight against the extravagances of man-based religion and decried the papacy, saying that only God was the sovereign of the faithful. But he also had to fight battles not only against the Church of Rome throughout Europe, but also with a misunderstanding of grace within his own church, where people lived in open immorality, claiming that because of grace, they could live the way they wanted, and yes, they should be allowed at the communion table. And he brought things to a head one Sunday when he denied communion to everybody until they could get it straightened out and recognize that the communion table was a strategic and important and holy event. Got him in a little bit of trouble with people of the city. So Calvin is sometimes seen as a severe man. He was actually warm and pastoral in, in how he dealt with people. He was a man of prayer. In fact, he said the principal exercise of faith is prayer. And he realized that as someone who slept on average four hours a night, he needed prayer to have vitality in his spiritual life and in his teaching. And though often he is caricaturized as being severe and only interested about things like predestination and election. In fact, those things show up very little in his writing. More interested he was about the mercy of God, the importance of prayer, the centrality of faith. And when he did preach on the doctrine of election, he saw it as a source of comfort for the believer, one that brought great humility and gratitude from the heart that had been transformed by grace and was so appreciative of God who would show such favor and affection on a sinner. 
He held a high view of God and his sovereignty in all things. And one of his guiding verses in his life was, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He sought no recognition for himself. He lived meagerly all throughout his life and gave away most of his money and died a poor man. But the signet of his life shows the character of a man. It shows a big heart held in a hand with the words, with readiness and wholeheartedness in God's work. As he neared the end of his life and as he reflected on all that he had gone through, he wrote this, God has given me the power to write. I have written nothing in hatred, but always have I faithfully attempted what I believed was for the glory of God. And on his deathbed, as he recited or as he dictated his last will and testament, the final words are this, I testify and declare that I trust to no other security for my salvation than this alone, that as God is the father of mercy, so he will show himself such a father to me who acknowledge myself to be a miserable sinner. Knowing that he was of certain status throughout the church in, in Europe, he commanded that he be buried in a common unmarked grave because he did, want, did not want his place of burial to become a Protestant shrine. And that happened. To this day, no one knows exactly where he is buried. In death, it was like in his life, soli deo gloria, to God alone be the glory. His life can be summarized by what we see at the end of Paul's letter to the church at Rome. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has been given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Please stand with me as we recite our final pledge and as we sing our final song and I will come back for a final affirmation. We reaffirm that because salvation is of God and has been accomplished by God, it is for God's glory and that we must glorify him always. We must live our entire lives before the face of God, under the authority of God, and for his glory alone. We deny that we can properly glorify God if our worship is confused with entertainment, if we neglect either law or gospel in our preaching, or if self-improvement, self-esteem, or self-fulfillment are allowed to become alternatives to the gospel. Wisdom, 
without measure, comfort and delights unknown, perfect also passing treasure, found in this God's word alone. Only grace can save the sinner, not the righteousness of man, all our efforts only hinder from the favor we demand, free and sovereign, in defiance of the wrath we should have known, not in merit nor through penance, we are saved by stirring and invigorating morning we've had to know that we are part of such a great heritage brought about by God and his grace and his mercy alone. I hope you'll take some time to stay around. If you can stay with the 11 a.m. hour, we'll take a short break, grab your coffee and come back in. Let's hear about decades of missionary service. And then we'll have a little lunch afterwards to celebrate if we can hang around. But thank you for being with us this morning for your patience as we have moved things along a little slower than we initially thought. But God is still good. And it's good to affirm what we believe. I invite you to to join. Is Is the last slide ready to go? Let's say our closing affirmations together. By the authority of Scripture alone, we reaffirm that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone, and Jesus Christ alone. 
for the glory of God alone. May God, in His infinite wisdom and strength, guide us and guard us to be faithful to the gospel, both in our proclamation and in our lives, both for His glory and for the well-being of His church. In Jesus' name, amen. Let us go in peace and have a wonderful Lord's Day.
Okay, let's go ahead and try to get started. We've, we've got a couple people out in the foyer still trying to scramble in a few people to bring them in so we can get, get going, but thank you for your patience this morning. And what a treat we have to be able to hear from Ken and Joanne. And so I don't want to talk anymore because I've talked enough. So let's go ahead and invite them and hear what they have to say about their time of ministry with the FCA. And just as a little tidbit, you may have seen us, and I don't know how many of you know Mike and Lorraine Cawthorn, but Mike and Lorraine Cawthorn were a very, very special couple to us way back in like 1980, 1981, 82, when we lived in Paradise, California, and Lorraine Cawthorn and I taught school together at Ponderosa Elementary School. So seeing them this morning, and Mike went to school with Ken's father in Westwood up in... Um, the mountains here, and so having them walk up to us, the last time we'd seen them, they lived in Las Molinas, so it was a shock to us. We'd lost contact with them, and to see them this morning was just a real thrill. Go ahead. <laughs> I was just filling time. Thanks, thanks. Well done. Um, uh, it's so interesting to hear uh, all the, the refreshing on the Reformation uh, this morning, because we lived in a part of Europe that was actually better known for the Counter-Reformation. And uh, we actually had a Swiss uh, theologian who was very well informed about the, the, well, either they ran them out of Austria, and if they couldn't run them out, they just killed them there. Um, the Protestants, those who were part of the Reformation. And uh, it was an outreach in our very, 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 very,